Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If you have a Black House Bible, it's page 810. All right? Okay, so Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If you are able to stand, please stand with us. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. There you go, Aaron. Call him up early, and we'll just pray for him. Lord, thank you for Aaron. Thank you for his heart. Thank you for his willingness to serve our body. And I just pray that you would give him the words exactly that you want him to say, the presence of mind. We know he's worked hard and studied hard, but that, that you would just shine through him today. In your name I pray. Thanks, everybody. Plug in and serve their neighbors. 
and what accounts for the turnaround besides obviously um, the Holy Spirit's work in a congregation and a city. If you talk to that pastor, one of the things he would say was they have a live to bless philosophy where the previous church had been a blight on their community. This church made it their mission to be a value add to their neighborhood. Whether or not any of those people ever stepped foot through their doors on a Sunday morning, they wanted to make that place a better place to live. And so the more and more I thought about that phrase, live to bless, it eventually hit me that this is just one way of saying what Jesus tells us in this passage this morning, that we're salt and light. We're through this first section of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we spent the better part of the last 12 weeks looking at the Beatitudes, looking at Jesus declaring God's favor on the vulnerable, the weak, and the losers in our world. And now he's going to follow that up with a couple of metaphors about the kind of impact that these weak, bottom rung of society followers of his are going to have on this world. And so this is, this is a passage that most of us are probably pretty familiar with. Uh, there's a lot of famous or familiar phrases in here, like being a city on a hill, hiding your lamp under a bushel basket, uh, letting your little light shine. And if you're like me, and you grew up with a dresser full of Christian t-shirts that were just parodies of famous brand logos. Um, anytime someone passes you on the road and they have that beach bumper sticker that says Salt Life, you always just assume it's a salt light. Um, so let's dive into this passage. We'll start by unpacking these metaphors, thinking about what they would have meant to Jesus' disciples and the crowds around them. Then we'll go through both um, some challenges and some warnings that are implicit in these metaphors. And then I want us together to see that as Jesus' followers today, we have to be in the business of blessing our community for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus. So for starters, then, salt and light in the ancient world. Um, as I was studying this week, I came across this, this quote from uh, a pagan Roman philosopher. He lived during the same time that Matthew wrote his gospel. He said, uh, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. These are two staples of survival, honestly. And not just in Jesus' day, but in our day as well. Uh, I know I can remember back when I was a, a college student living alone, I used to wonder all the time, why don't stores sell like bachelor-sized products? Like bachelor-sized portions of spices and stuff. Like I need a pinch of brown sugar, not a whole packet. I was never gonna use the rest of it. Yet as a guy who mostly subsisted on homemade chili and leftover buffalo wild wings, I always had that big, blue box of salt in my cabinet. And as far as furnishings in my apartment, you know, I had a lumpy couch, you know, a folding card table where I would eat, and then lamps, a bunch of lamps. Um, the salt 
and life. These two kinds of bare necessities that, regardless of your place in time or history, you're going to use and you're going to need. So Jesus begins in Matthew 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This first illustration, salt. It had two primary, it had a lot of uses, it had two primary uses in Jesus' day. And that first one is similar to our primary use of salt today. And that's seasoning. I know this is going to be a controversial thing. Um, but I happen to really like eating Taco Bell. I know. I know it's not the highest quality food around, but every time I eat it, it tastes delicious. It does. It does. You can't convince me otherwise. And you probably know why it tastes delicious, and it's because of our good buddy, Salt. I got on the, the, the app to order my Taco Bell for the first time a while back, and I noticed that like, a bunch of the things had this little asterisk next to them, so I clicked on it. Like, what is, why, why is this marking on all menu items? I clicked on it, it took me to a warning, and here's the warning, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Warning indicates that the salt content of this item is higher than the total daily recommended limit. Total daily recommended So I thought, okay, I should probably only get two of these. I think you get my point. Whether you live 2,000 years ago or today, Salt makes things taste amazing. You can immediately tell when there's salt in a dish or when someone has under or over seasoned their food. And so like a packed with salt burrito, the world should be able to tell when God's people are among them. And it should be for a good reason. That pastor friend of mine I mentioned earlier, uh, before he decided to settle down and do a church revitalization. Uh, he was a traveling evangelist. He'd go to churches all over the country uh, to teach and preach. And one of the things he always used to do was find the nearest, you know, gas station, restaurant, wherever, and ask the person serving him if they'd ever heard of the church where he was preaching. He'd say, "Hey, you know, I'm from out of town. I'm looking for this place. Have you ever heard of, you know, City Community Church or whatever it was called?" And so many times, he'd get a blank look, or a confused look, like, I've never heard of that place. And so often, the church was across the street, or around the corner. Friends, this is not how it ought to be at any church, in any community. I love when my wife, Caitlin, will tell me stories of folks she meets around town through work. Uh, on so many occasions, she'll tell someone that she goes to cars, and they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard of that church. Um, my kid plays basketball there. We talk a lot about being in the city, for the city, around here. We just put it on a, a shirt, for goodness sake. Uh, that's our way of saying that we live to bless. It's our way of saying that we want to be salt in this city. And sometimes we're salt as a whole church. Talk to someone, oh yeah, I know cars, folks. Uh, they came and helped me clean my apartment with Fort Columbia. Sometimes we're salt as an MC. 
Someone might say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, small group of college, college age guys, you know, they, they help give me rides, they take me to the grocery store when I'm in need. And sometimes uh, it says an individual. We're, we're salts. You know, I hear someone say, you know, oh, a handyman in my neighborhood came to my house, fixed my porch, fixed my door. Um, he had some kind of shirt with a triangle. I think it said Karis on it, maybe. <laughs> Salt has a distinct and delicious flavor to it. And then the other main use for salt was as a preservative. Fun fact, Jesus and his disciples did not have uh, refrigerators or deep freezers in their garages. If they were fortunate enough to get their hands on, you know, a big piece of meat that they wanted to save for a while, the way they preserved it was by packing it in with a big layer of salt. And now nothing lasts forever, obviously, but this method of preservation was really effective. This meat that was preserved in salt, it could last a considerable length of time. And so, like a packed in salt, piece of meat, Jesus' followers ought to be the kind of people who live for the good of their city, as a conduit of God's grace to every person with whom we come in contact. Every um, commentary I read this week said something to, to this effect. Um, we all know that the world around us is full of sin. It's like raw meat that, if left uncovered on a countertop, is prone to decay and rot. I know I've done that plenty of times. As a preservative presence, part of the church's responsibility to our world is to act in ways that display God's goodness. To display God's goodness and the life-giving way that he's called all humanity to. This includes things like Serving and standing up for the least of these in our community. We'll, we'll read that passage down the road in the Sermon on the Mount. It looks like pursuing justice both in the way that we interact with each other personally as a congregation and the way that we call to account those who would wield power as a weapon in our world. And I'd like to give us a word of caution uh, this morning related to our preservative presence in the world. Um, for too long, churches, churches like us, even, uh, being salt has meant fighting a political cultural war. But focusing our efforts into getting your favorite Christian Republican, Christian Democrat, or Christian Libertarian to run our world, it can't be our main strategy. Now, certainly, there are ways that we engage faithfully in a world of politics as disciples. But we can't simultaneously battle against the stinky, sinful powers in our world while trying to grab hold of them for ourselves. Rather, the salt is saltiest in our own community. We start and we focus most of our efforts by embodying Christ-likeness here in our church, in our MCs, in our homes, and then taking that out into our cities. You go to Costco on the weekends, just all kinds of examples. 
It's how we need to be as salt. We, we take the Christ-likeness that, that God has constructed in us, we take it out, and we give our city, we give our community a taste and invite them to experience more. Martin Luther said this, he said, with his single word, I can be more defiant and boastful than they, with all their power, swords, and guns. Church, I say this with confidence, that Jesus' call for us to be salt will never require us to assault a person made in his image. Salt preserves not by becoming another layer of meat around what you're trying to preserve, but by being salt packed in around the meat and acting upon it. So let's move on to Jesus' second analogy, light. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And again, light is a, is a common uh, motif. It's a common theme throughout scripture. It's most commonly a metaphor for um, revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but just in general, in general, the act of revealing some kind of new knowledge or truth, gospel truth. In the Old Testament, one of, Israel, one of God's primary callings for the people of Israel was to be a light to the nations. There was supposed to be a place where when outsiders passed through or lived among them, they reflected clearly who God was and what he was like. Jesus applies this same purpose to his followers. He says we're lights of the world. Here's the difference, though, between the method of this mission. In the Old Testament, the primary source of light was the temple. This is the place where God's presence dwelt. And Jerusalem was literally a city on the top of a hill. The temple, uh, this light to the nations, it was stationary. Didn't move around, go places. Uh, it was like a lighthouse. The closer to the lighthouse you got, the more clearly you saw. It was like a beacon shining out into the choppy seas and saying, Come over here. Come and see what God is like. Come experience this. Come here for salvation and refuge. For the church, though, God's presence isn't limited to a temple. Since his spirit lives in our hearts. Instead of one beacon surveying the seas, Jesus' followers are like search and rescue boats out in the middle of wreckage looking for people. If you've seen the movie Titanic, uh, think about those final scenes. You've got Rose. She survives the actual sinking of the ship. But it doesn't mean she's out of the water. She's floating on a door in this frozen sea. I know you guys have seen this movie. It's like the third most popular, highest grossing movie of all time. Uh, she's floating around. She can't do anything but wait for someone to come and rescue her. Then you see it. This rescue boat with a flashlight comes by. It shines on her face. She blows her whistle for help. They come and rescue her. They come and scoop her up out of the water. This is the difference between God's purpose for his people in the Old Testament and his 
purpose for his people in the New Testament. Instead of one lighthouse drawing people in from afar, we're to be a fleet of lifeboats on search and rescue missions, grabbing people out of the darkness. And if light is connected to knowledge and truth, truth of the gospel, then one of our primary good works is proclaiming that good news. Going back to something Martin Luther said, he says that as Matthew records in the Sermon of Jesus, he is thinking principally about the distinctly Christian work of teaching correctly, of stressing faith, and of showing how to strengthen and preserve it. This is how we testify that we really are Christians. Now, I would also add, I think, that our, our gospel proclamation, our light is not only our gospel proclamation, but it's not less than that. Jesus specifically says that our good works as well, our gospel actions, point others towards God. Surely that includes what we say, speaking is an action. But it's just as much what we do and how we live in the world. This statement reverberates with what we've already kind of explored with the salt metaphor. Salt or light illuminates. Like salt seasoning, people will and should know that we're in their midst. And so we kind of unearth some of these images, some of these metaphors. Jesus' followers are salt because we're to be seasoning and preservation in our world. We're light in that we illuminate the good news about Jesus and point people to the Father through our acts of generosity and love. These are calls to action. And at the same time, they're paired with warnings or challenges. So let's look at those as well. Because it's the warnings and the challenges that will highlight the significance of these callings. The warning with salt is pretty explicit. Uh, look back at Matthew 5.13 with me. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I know I've got some chemistry folks in the congregations, and uh, if you found one of them and asked them about salt, at least the kind that Jesus is talking about here, the kind that you can just get out of the Dead Sea, they might not have a lot to say about it because it's a relatively simple compound. Two ingredients, sodium and chloride. That's what makes it salt. That's what makes it salty. And here's the thing. There is actually no such thing as unsalty salt. It's a rhetorical question. Salt is salty by nature. It's salty because it's salt. And if it doesn't taste like salt, then it's not salt. And so here's Jesus' warning in the other last part of verse 13. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Unsalty salt is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in itself. It's nothing. It's not real. If it was, it would be utterly worthless and without purpose. And that phrase that, that Jesus uses about being thrown out, it you know, kind of sounds innocuous. You don't really think too much of you know, salt being thrown out on the sidewalk. Uh, but throughout Matthew's Gospel, it is always a really, really, really bad thing 
to get thrown somewhere. Just, right? I mean, in general, no one here likes to get thrown. But in Matthew, we have a bunch of phrases. I'll go through them quickly. A tree that does not bear fruit is thrown into the fire. A body part that causes someone to sin is either cut off and thrown away, or the whole person is thrown into hell. The wedding crasher is bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness, and the unrighteous are thrown into a fiery furnace. Unsalty salt is thrown into the gutter to be transformed. This tells us that we're not just called to be salt. We're commanded to be salt. Uh, Pastor Jeff mentioned last week uh, that as good Reformed Protestants, we start to squirm a little bit when we talk about works. Because we know that it's not our works that earn us salvation or a place in God's family. But with that affirmed, Jesus does not seem to have a problem with putting our obedience and our discipleship really close together. We'll continue to see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount and throughout all the gospel narratives. Now, absolutely, we will fail to obey Jesus perfectly. We will. And thankfully, God showers us with new grace every day. But here's Jesus' warning in this passage. Unsalty salt isn't in the pantry. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. What about the warning or the challenge of being light? This one is a little bit more implicit than explicit. But look at verse 14 with me. Jesus says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now again, this is one of those phrases that is, you know, probably everyone's heard at some point. It's a really popular phrase in our country specifically. And whether you're JFK or Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama, uh, so many of our leaders will call back to this phrase. It's, it's an allusion to something that John Withrop said in 1630 as he led one of those first groups of Puritans from England to America. And I actually think Winthrop understood this verse with its warning properly. Here's what he said in that speech. Here's his whole quote. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. And now this is where most people stop. And they just kind of assume that he was saying, you know, we're going to go halfway across the world. We're going to do it right. We're going to show people how to do it. But let's keep reading what he says. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work that we've undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God. And all professors for God's sake, that is people who profess to be followers of Jesus. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us. So we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. So the warning to the lights of the world is this. It's a call to mission, but it's a call to holiness, to purity.
purity. Light illuminates. We've already said this a couple times. Light brings the beauty of the gospel into our world. The light of our good work should make Jesus look more and more beautiful and amazing to the people who don't know him yet. Jesus says that the church, not any earthly empire, is a city on a hill and that we cannot be hidden. Sometimes that's great, but sometimes it also means that we don't get to hide our own sins or our own scandals. I'm sure you can think of any number of inflammatory tweets or op-eds or news stories right now where the light is shined on the church and exposes our sin. These instances cause, as John Bloomberg feared, non-Christians to see God's people and then actually curse him because of us. Say, well, I don't want to follow that God. Jesus isn't that great if this is what his followers do. In those moments, our response, it can't be, here's what it can't be, digging in, personal or brand management, fake hand apologies. It has to be humility and honesty and repentance. The call to be light is a call to holiness. So then where do we go with all this? Like we soften, say in the welcome, uh, MCs, they are the heartbeat of our church body and the primary way that we make disciples at ours. And live on mission. And so whether you are an MC leader or a regular member of an MC, or maybe this is, you know, you've only been to cars a couple times and you're still checking out some MCs. As we wrap up this morning, even as we move into the summer, I want to encourage you to do two things to serve your MCs. I want you to serve together, and I want you to share together. Serve together and share together. So firstly, serving together. You don't have to reinvent the wheel on this one. You have to do something cookie cutter either. If there are multiple teachers or professional child care workers in your group, then you guys know better than anyone else how to serve those folks in our city. If you're a group with a lot of students, find a way to serve your classmates, your teachers, your professors, or your administrators. If the person who lives next door to where your MC meets uh, works for the city, find a way to get plugged into a city event. Serve alongside your neighbors. I know for my group, this is something we need to work on. We're certainly in the city, but we could stand to be a lot more for the city. And then secondly, sharing together. I know this from personal experience as well, that it can be difficult sometimes for us to move from serving to sharing. It's not uncommon for those you serve to um, praise you or praise you when they, when they thank you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, and we can accept someone's gratitude in a, a humble way. And that's also where we need to take that opportunity to shift the focus from us Jesus. The reason we serve selflessly, give generously, and love lavishly is because we've been loved and served and given to beyond what we
we could ever deserve or even imagine. Guards, before Jesus moved in our spirits and awakened us to himself, we weren't just some kind of unsalty salt. We were rotting flesh. We weren't just a damp wick on a lamp or a bushel basket lampshade. We were the scary things that hid in the dark corners of our houses. It's what our sin does to us. It's what our sin does in our lives and to the people around us. It makes us stinky and scary, and it fills us with darkness and death. But in John chapter 1, the Bible says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it. Yesterday morning, uh, we had one of our first Chorus Men's events since COVID, and there was a young man who prayed that gospel truth for us. Jesus has won victory over sin and death and the devil. It doesn't matter how bad it may look in our world, how strong the smell of rotting flesh is around us, or how deep the darkness is in us. We cannot overcome the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, uh, we bless you this morning. Thank you for giving us your word to guide and direct us. Pray this morning for myself, for this congregation. God, make us salty salt, make us bright lights that uh, we can go out into our city. God, fill us with your spirit to go into the world and point people to you. To your goodness and your grace and to your son and to his cross. God, make us sober uh, to hear the warnings of this passage and to follow you well and to pursue holiness together. Amen. God, as we continue to worship together around your table, give us unity by your spirit and around your son. Cause us to remember in a new way the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and the promise that he gave to us. God, we're thankful for everything you've blessed us with. And above all, we're thankful for Jesus, the light of the world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, at Cars, um, every week we gather, we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Uh, this is a symbol that Jesus himself gave to his followers to remember his gospel. It's often called communion as well, because we experience his presence, communion with him. We also experience communion with each other, our brothers and sisters, as a spiritual family. Both of these aspects, they are only possible through the blood of Jesus. He died in our place for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved. And because of that, we can be in God's presence again. We can also draw near to our brothers and sisters again. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've been baptized, um, I want to invite you to join us this morning in the Lord's Supper. Um, whenever you're ready, come on up. Take a piece of bread as well as a cup. You can partake of it here or take it back to your seat. You can also take one of the pre-packaged cups that are down here as well or up in the balcony if you're more comfortable with that. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, 
Um, I want to say, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and I want to invite you to do a couple of other things before taking the supper, instead of taking the supper. First off, where you're at, take time to pray, call out to Jesus by faith, and turn away from your sins. Reach out to Him, trust Him. Trust that His life and death and resurrection has the power to forgive you and restore you. And then I'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to get baptized and make that faith public. Additionally, uh, myself, some of the, the elders here at Paris will be in the back of the auditorium in just a couple minutes. We're always there to pray uh, about anything. If you want to pray about following Jesus, getting baptized, or just have something else you'd like to pray for. And if you want to talk, ask questions about something I said here this morning, um, I can meet you over there on, next to those couches after the gathering is over. Uh, but church, the bread represents his body broken for us. And the cup represents his blood poured out for our sins. So through his life and death and resurrection, we can have peace.